Father, we come before you knowing that all of us, Lord, if you gave each and every one of us what we deserved, it would not hold a candle to earthly imprisonment. In fact, we would beg for earthly imprisonment. We would deserve the full wrath of God for all of eternity. And yet, God, you, in your mercy, gave us grace and planted faith into our minds and hearts so we could believe, granted us regeneration so we could be sons and daughters of the King. And so we know, God, you are gracious. We pray that you would show mercy in all of the situation. You would rescue victims. You would bring your judgment upon the wicked who hold children captive, who force an industry that is so pagan and so godless. But you would also be merciful to those who repent. And so, Lord, we ask your help. Lord, thank you for the Bible. We now want to turn to it, Lord. We want to find truth in the Word of God to help steer our lives and give us great love and devotion for our Savior. Thank you for the Old Testament. It gives us so much joy and gratitude for the New Covenant. And I pray you would encourage our souls as we look into the Word tonight, Lord. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus is our text, Exodus chapter 28, to be specific. We are going to do our best, don't laugh at me, to get through 28 through 31. I will give you some oversight of each chapter and then we'll talk about the New Covenant view of these things. But preparing for the presence of God, part three, and in, in all of these passages you have Moses up on the mountain and he is preparing... He has given instructions to prepare the people for the presence of God to dwell with them. The presence of a holy, almighty God to dwell with sinners. It's an extremely difficult process. In this study, it has made me think how holy is the most holy place in my heart. Remember last week I told you the most holy place in the world is right where you sit. Because if you're a Christian, the most holy God indwells you. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Well, how holy is that place? Well, first of all, we understand that God has positionally made us holy. Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 22. Just listen to this. Although you were formerly alienated. means you had no right to God. And hostile in mind. And not only do you not have a right to God, you hated God. Whether you showed that or not. Engaged in evil deeds. The end of the Bible says this in verse 22. Yet, that's, I love that conjunction there. Yet, he, God, has now reconciled you. That means change your position in his fleshly body. That's Christ. That's the incarnation of Christ. Through his death in order to present you before him. Now listen to these three adjectives. To present you before God, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now, if you dwell on this for a little bit, and you're honest with who you really are, or who you at least used to be, and who you're capable of being as sinners, 
and you read those three adjectives, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if you don't give God all the glory, <laughs> you don't understand the passage. And you're not, you're not dealing with yourself in a right perspective. He takes people formally alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's all of us. Every child, every person ever born. And he now reconciles us. He changed Scott's position from this alienated one, this hostile one, this, this one engaged in evil deeds by his incarnation coming to earth, taking on flesh. He changed my position so that he can now take me and put me before his father and say, Scott is holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, I don't know if that stirs your drink or not, but boy, does it get my blood boiling. Because I can't believe what the Lord did for me. After almost 50 years in the faith, I still can't get over the fact that he would do that for me. So that's positional holiness. Well, positional holiness should greatly affect your practical holiness. How you live your life. 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 through 17 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And remember, we described what the word ignorance was. It's this willful sin. You can never separate the word ignorance in the Bible from sin. It's a sinful ignorance. It, it's this person who is always hearing something but never coming to the knowledge of truth. And so Peter says that, as obedient children, don't be conformed to our former lust in which you were in your ignorance, that willful sinning. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior because it is, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So God says, because I'm holy, I'm going to make you holy. So let that affect your life. And then verse 17 is powerful. He's, Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Then here's the, here's the result of this. Conduct yourself in fear during this time on your stay on earth. See, I just don't think a lot of people who claim to be Christians fear the Lord anymore. Now, it's a different type of fear. It's not, it's not a sinful fear like the Israelites. Remember, they didn't want to go to the presence of God. They kept saying, oh, no, 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 you go, Moses. Oh, we're fine. They had a wrong perspective of God. This is that awe of God. And I think that's progressive sanctification. That's growing in Christ daily so that we have an awe of God. An awe of God. And so positional holiness must greatly affect our practical holiness. Do you understand that? Is that shooting too high, too low? Everybody get that? God made me holy and blameless and above reproach. That, if that's true... The Bible says it should affect my daily living. And then we come to great verses like this because, oh, we're all a bunch of law keepers in some ways, right? I think someone wrote a book one time or an article I read sometime. They said there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. But Romans 10.4, and I love Romans 10.4 because I can always remember it. I go, 10.4, I get that. 10.4, I get this. Now listen to what 10.4 means. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. <laughs> you want to try to gain righteousness through the law? Good luck. You better be perfect. 
Christ came, the perfect one, to end that, that law standard that we could not keep. He fulfilled it himself. He put an end to it. But it's only for those who believe. So those who want to keep trying to keep the law, in, in essence, this passage says they're not real believers. Now, the law is always good. It's not the law's fault. But it is not anything that can save you. It is the righteous position we have in Christ. Now, I give you all that because as I teach on Exodus 28 through 31, we get into a lot of details of the tabernacle, a lot of the dress, a lot of things they did, how they approached this holy God. And we as creatures who, who want to make lists can often look at the Old Testament and go, ooh, I think I'd better do that. And there's all kinds of churches out there now believing in, in some kind of, well, you've got to keep this and that. And they really gain people all the time because everybody wants a list. Just give me a list and I'll do it. But yet living by grace and faith alone is difficult. It's the work of the Spirit. And so I'm going to go through this. And every time I go through a chapter, we're going to jump on the New Testament and see how Christ fulfilled it, okay? So we don't get lost in some law keeping here in some kind of way. But there are fun things to see in these texts. And it's fun to see this glorious God dwelling with such sinful people. And how he does it. Because he loves his creation. Number one, the priestly mediation and dress. Verse 28. I mean, excuse me, chapter 28. The priestly mediation and dress. Well, Aaron and his sons have been briefly mentioned in some of the past chapters here. Um, as the articles of the tabernacle were being laid out. We've already looked at the sh- table of showbread and the candlesticks and so forth and all that. But in 28 and 29, their focus on their duties comes to the forefront now. It's highlighted what they're going to be doing. And there's an overarching principle of priesthood is the idea that mediation between, now let's think about this, mediation between the realm of God and the realm of sinful men. That's their job. That high priest's job is to to mediate between the righteous realm of God and sinful men. See, this is why we needed a great high priest, right? But here, this is all pointing forward to something, right? So a priest would facilitate the communication with God through some of his words. He actually didn't speak much in his presence, but mostly through his actions that he performed in the presence of God in the most holy of holy place. Now, chapter 28 begins with a general instruction. Just look at the text as I'm kind of going down. I'm going to give some general thoughts here. In 28, we see in the first five verses here just general instructions regarding the priestly garments. Um, These were important. There's tremendous detail. Everything is about being in the presence of God. Don't forget that when you read this. And then you get to verse 6 through 14, and the focus is now on the details of the effort. How do you say that? I said it all week long, and now I can't say it. And so now whenever Aaron and the high priest enter into the tabernacle, he carried this... Say it again. Ephod. Sorry, my mind just went blank. Ephod on him. And, and on his shoulders were two stones that were engraven with the tribes of Israel. Now, some people thought they were engraven by the, the, the mothers... Um, Rebecca and Leah, but I don't think that's true. I think he separated them, six on each, on there, and God had them put there. So in other words, anytime he went in the tabernacle on this ephod, he had the, the people, the God's people with him. Now, you begin to see in uh, verses 15 through 30, 
Now this ephod is connected to a breastplate. Now these two pieces were secured so they could never come apart in the presence of God. God never wanted that. A breastplate of really of which reflected his people and righteousness and all of that. They were to be held together as he came in there. And all this is connected to this mediation work the high priest does on behalf of God's people. And the breastplate, just like the ephod, has represented 12 stones. These are the tribes of, of Israel. But in essence, what it's saying is God wanted his people front and center before him. And this high priest would bear them and bring them into the presence. Now, I hope your mind's thinking forward of the book of Hebrews as you think of some of this. Chapter uh, 28, verses 31 through 43, there's a lot of instruction on there. You've got robes, bells, blue cords, turbans, sashes, and headbands. And they're all representing the holiness of God and man's need of his mercy in one way or another. And all this signifies that Aaron was coming dressed in a manner, um, in a way that, that showed that man was in need of God. Every, every piece was to honor God and to show that man was in need of God and that Aaron could not come into the divine presence of God in his own capacity. He didn't have the right to step into the presence of God just himself. And that's so true today. You ever want to step in the presence of God, you better come in the righteousness of Christ because that's the only way you're going to get into his presence. So all that's being displayed here. Now, there's, there's a lot of things to study in here, and if you really want to chase some of the Old Testament history, you can have fun with them. But there's some tinkling bells that would be on the robes of these high priests. And it was interesting, they would say that it was fairly quiet. There was not, there was, actually, there was no chanting ever. That was the pagan world. The pagan world chanted before their gods. Chanted repetition over and over. Foreign tongues and all of that stuff was all part of pagan worship. Huh, sounds like it's kind of made its way into Christianity in some ways. I won't go there until I get to 1 Corinthians. Anyway, um, what you mostly heard was these tinkling bells as this high priest once a year worked his way into the, temp, to the, holy, the holy place, the most holy place, and he would have on him the names of the tribes, God's people, in truth, on the foreplate, the forehead plate that he would have there, which would say, holy is the Lord, and he would say nothing. And all you would hear was those tinkling of those bells as he, as he came close to the, to the mercy seat there to spread blood from the bulls and goats that were killed on behalf of the people. It's a very, very, uh, probably nerve-wracking and very quiet worshipful scene. In one aspect, the priesthood gave evidence that through this, that the, he was aware of the sinfulness of man. He knew he was in the presence of a holy God. He knew who he was. And so there wasn't this bold chanting and telling God what to do and what you demand of him. It was very, very humble. And everything about the beauty of his dress was not to reflect man. It was to reflect God, to be in the presence of a holy God to be dressed right, to stand in his presence. Now, the high priest was recognized as having the status and authority to act on behalf of sinful men. That's what this one of these main highlights of this chapter. He has authority to represent man. And, and, and think about this. God really hasn't dwelled with man since the garden. 
Now, he had relationships with Jacob and Joseph and dreams and visions and speaking to them and uh, a, lot, a lot of things. But he has not been on, on the ground, in a sense, with man. And so all of this is about the high priest recognizing that he is submitting to this holy God, coming God's whole holy way so sinful man can be in the presence of him at least temporarily so god brings the true high priest before the tabernacle was built there were certain types you see all head uh, heads of households and even some young young men like the josephs and so forth that were mediators before god on behalf of others but now with the establishment of the tabernacle or the sanctuary in the midst of Israel, the priesthood was being developed. And so that's what we're seeing here, this priesthood starting to be developed. And God was clearly illustrating divinely designated priest, a priest, a high priest, who was, omit, was uh, uh, admitted or allowed to approach him on the behalf of others. And I keep saying that because it's so important. And the way he was to come was through righteousness and sacrifice. Don't come into my presence unless you've done everything right that I've told you. And think about that. Righteousness. And that you're bringing a sacrifice. Boy, isn't, that's not easy to run in the New Testament, is it? I mean, that's just so easy to run there. Well, Christ, right? He comes in his own righteousness. I can walk in the presence of the Father. He's perfectly righteous. And he brings a sacrifice. What? His own blood. This is what we see the Lord do. How beautiful it is. Now... Back in 28, we pick up the essence of the priesthood focused on one person. And of course, this is that first Saturday of Christ we just talked about last week. If you missed last week's sermon, we had a great time just to jet tour through Hebrews, just seeing that the greater Christ is greater in every way, particularly in the priesthood. But Jesus, he, he is going to be this divinely recognized mediator. We needed a divine mediator. All the ones who mediated before, the Josephs and Jacobs and even Moses and Aaron and so forth, were all men who could not eternally be our mediator. They needed someone to die for them. And so Jesus is that divine mediator. And all of this represents him. This all represents, all pointing towards him. But unlike the sacrifices of Israel's priesthood, they could not take away sin. So they had to do these over and over and over. But Christ... (laughs) Oh, isn't he beautiful? He came bearing his own blood, standing in his own righteousness, and offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. Therefore, there's no, other, there's no longer a need for special old covenant priestly class of people of God. It's interesting when I get around um, the wor- in the world, often on the golf course or flying somewhere or something like that, and people begin to try to question what I do, and I start to try to explain them without telling them I'm a pastor because they always quit talking to me. So I'm always trying to find a way to get in a conversation. Pretty soon they think I'm a priest. And then they somehow think that I have some kind of special inroad with God that which they could never have. And that's the door I'm actually looking for. Because the New Testament no longer dwells on the significance of other priests of the Mosaic law, but now it focuses on a new covenant that all believers are now priests to God. We call it the priesthood of the believers. And because of the relationship with the one and true eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, we can walk into his presence at any time in any place if you're a believer. Isn't that amazing? So Christ's perfect offering of himself 
has now just eradicated any other old covenant sacrifices that God's people need. We don't sacrifice. We don't do any of that to order to gain the love of God. Now, well, what does the new covenant do tell us we do? Look with me at 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I was quoting out of chapter 1 earlier in the introduction, but look at chapter 2. What a beautiful text this is. That verse 4 is about our Lord Jesus Christ and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. So Jesus was that living stone. He's the cornerstone. He's been rejected. God's word says is choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus has always been choice and precious. It's because he didn't need somebody else's righteousness. He didn't need somebody else's sacrifice. He was the son of God. He was perfect in everything. He is God. And so the father calls him choice and precious. But verse 5, now he start, turns to the priesthood of the believers in a sense. He says, you also, well, you also must refer back to the fact that we are choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, both those words are very important. Choice meaning God chooses whose are his. Whether you like that or not, we're going to get into that more on Sunday because uh, we're going to get into election on Sunday in our series on salvation. But you have to give God the credit for that. And, and so just as the son was chosen to come be our representative, our mediator, our sacrifice, our righteous and holy one, so we are chosen and precious in the sight of God as being, a ho- being part of the living stones that make up the house of God. Look at verse 5. So also you, right? As living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, here we go, for a holy priesthood. This is the priesthood of the believers. God is selecting us out of the world, right? He knows us from the foundations of the world. He, he doesn't lose any of us. He gives us all to the Son. And we're this love gift to the Son, He selects us out and he's building a spiritual house of of the priesthood of the believers. Now think about that. Every one of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ, God hand-selected and put into the foundation of his son. That is staggering, isn't it? That's a house that stands during trials when the winds of of difficulty and and even judgment comes, as Matthew 7 says, it stands because it is God who built it, set those stones in the house of God, set them in the the foundation of Christ, the very cornerstone, and it does not move. But notice we're being built up into a spiritual house for the holy priesthood, and here's what we do as the holy priesthood. None of these things you're going to see in the text in in Acts, I mean, in Exodus, But look at what we do now to offer up spiritual sacrifices, not physical ones anymore, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, you say, well, what are those? We'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 13 real quick, verse 15. I want to know what those are. I think you do, but let's see what the Bible says. So you jot this down and you'll go home and be a good priest and offer up these praises. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, 
let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So this is what the priesthood of the new covenant offer up. We are not slain bulls and goats. Those, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, Hebrews chapter 10. We offer up the praise to the one who was righteous himself, did not need anybody else's righteousness, who offered up himself on our behalf to bring us into the very presence of God, not for just a day or, or one day a year, but for all of eternity. See, this is why when a brother or sister dies and passes away and their coffin is here and we speak the gospel during that time, is now we're able to say that brother or that sister is with the Lord, not just for the day. He's permanently, she's permanently with the Lord. Because Jesus Christ offered himself up for her or for him. And we find such great comfort in that. And so what we do now, the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the priest, the believer priest, come into the presence of God at any time. You could be in your kitchen singing praises to God. Or you corporately come together here. We sing and teach and hold forth his word and offer up great sacrifices to the God that are a sweet aroma to him. That's why we really, Hayward's up here going, sing this out. Did you hear him? Sing this out, brothers. Sing this out, brethren. That's us, the, the priesthood before Almighty God, lifting up our sacrifices, dressed in the right robes of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the righteousness. We're walking into the presence of the Father, and together we're singing how much we, saying how much we praise him and love him. Isn't that beautiful? Number two. Go back to Exodus 29. Here we find the consecration of the priest and their sacrifices. Exodus 29 here. The chapter, um, chapter 29 contains uh, details of how Aaron and his son were installed as priests here. And this, this is expanded information. If you look at just the end of 28, notice in verse 41. Here it says, as he's gone through some of these other things... Uh, breastplate and ephod and so forth. Verse 41, he says, you shall, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, and they will serve me as priests. And so now we have an understanding that God has identified Aaron and his sons and the succession of sons to be this priest before God. And so now 29 is going to expound on that. Now, as after preparations of the priest who, who will perform the, the duty, duties serving the tabernacle, that's basically what's in this text, 1 through 37. And the chapter closes on the daily sacrifices. But verses 1 through 3, Moses introduces um, or instructs by God uh, to assemble animals and probably more like grain offerings that, that, that are baked and come in the form of bread here. And so verses 1 through 3, we see bulls and rams and baskets of bread are all brought to the tabernacle as the first stage of the sac sacrificial ceremony. Verses one through, uh, excuse me, 4 through 9, the next stage he begins to introduce to them is where the ceremony has the human participants are presented here. So now they start to present this stuff. And these verses describe the cleansing and the dressing of the, of the priest to stand in the presence of a holy God. Now, because the high priest embodied the essence of the priesthood, the focus is now on him. So there's this washing and there's this dressing in these sacred garments. 
that are described in 28. Verses 10 through 28, these verses, we see the preparation of the priest. It's just all this special clothing that he's supposed to wear. And, and details are, are clear here. That's very detailed, and I'm, that's why I don't want to go through every one of them. Um, but there's a detailed series of sacrifices here as well. And, and it stretches over the seven-day period, um, and it points to the need that the priest had to be reconciled before he could come in. So in this passage, we start to see a priest who has to wash himself. Then he has to sacrifice for himself before he can even begin to sacrifice for others, and then before he can even go in before holy God. So first, there is a pres- was presented a sin offering. You can see this through 10 through 28 there. And it's an interesting offering. It starts with a little bit of fat that's put on the altar. And it's showing this need for atonement. And, and um, I kind of like this stuff because if you butcher cattle... <laughs> okay, hang on. Um, when you, when, if you fed cattle right, and, and we fed a lot of cattle through the years and butchered a lot of cattle, when you open them up and in their kidneys and in their liver is this little cluster of extremely white, white fat. It is the sweetest fat in the world. This is where you have to tell your butcher, hey, make sure I get that because they always want to take this because they'll grind it into everything else and it, and it really makes your meat just this incredible flavor. Well, God wanted that. He saw that as, as the best part of the animal in a sense. And so we see that they're supposed to bring this fat of the kidney and, uh, and bring it before the Lord. So they're to offer this and serve this before the Lord. After they do all that, so he wants that first. Then he wants a whole bull, right? And so now they bring this whole animal and they bring it before, the God, before God and they burn it on the altar. And then finally, there was an offering that presented um, the, the priest in such a way that he might even enjoy this meal with God. And so God gives him a portion of that bull that was sacrificed. And, and it's interesting that why he has it do it, because it shows that God is now pleased with the sacrifice and he lets them partake in that meal with him. And I think that's really interesting. We'll see some New Testament implications to that in just a moment. Now, verses 28 through 30 highlight the seven-day process that would require priestly office to transfer uh, this instruction to the next generation. See, they're obligated to to teach the next. And that's all about, listen, Aaron, you're not going to live forever, and um, I'm going to send my son at some time, but tell that point, I want a succession of priests. And he's given instruction in there. Verses 31 through 37 describes the ordination meal to be eaten only by the family of the high priest. They were, no one else was supposed to share that meal with God. Now that's important because there's going to be a meal someday that only believers will share who are priests, right? And so there's a strong emphasis on whatever touches the altar is holy. Look at verse 37 of chapter 29. Um, I want you to see this. For seven days you shall make an atonement for the altar and the consecrated, and then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. So God has a detailed way of showing how sacrifice is going to make things holy. You, you're all following me, right? I, I hope we're at a point where our church goes, he keeps talking about Christ. No matter where he's at in the Bible, he keeps going to Christ. Because if, this is, if it's not about Christ, we're in trouble, folks. Because we've already missed that boat <laughs> that sailed called holiness. 
And so everything's pointing forward to something. And unfortunately, lost people look at stuff like this and they come up and make design religions so that you somehow can keep some forms of this in some cockamamie ways in order to present yourself holy before God. And it fails every time. And that's why salvation is by Christ alone, period. He is the only one that can get us here. And I love looking at this Old Testament truth because to me, this is Jesus on the Emmaus Road saying, oh foolish ones, slow to believe all that Moses told you, let alone Psalms and prophets, that it was all pointing towards me. You guys got hooked up into the, into the, uh, the, the manual keeping of this and, and thinking that maybe you would gain the kingdom through it. And it was not about that, it was about me. And so if you're teaching Old Testament to children and you're teaching tabernacles or King David or whatever, you better get to Christ. Or we're going to tell you to go teach at some other place. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, little boys and little girls grow up thinking, I have a list of things I need to do in order God will make me holy. Everything points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the chapter ends in 38 through 46 with the formal duties of the priest. Uh, all that's been installed and the details are given of the regular sacrifices that are be, to be presented. And there's a lot of them. But look at the goal of instruction is found in the very end of this. And I love 43 through 46. It says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel. He's given, he's given all the tabernacle stuff. He's gonna still, he has a few things to go in 30 and 31. But for the most part, all the instruction of the tabernacle, the holy place, the most holy place, all the articles that are in there has all been given, those of importance. And he's, now he's going to say, I will meet there with the sons of Israel. I, holy God, will come and meet with them. And it shall be consecrated to my glory. The whole tabernacle, everything was to be set apart for him. It was not to be man-centered. This is why Jesus was so upset when he came. And they turned his father's house into a, a house of thieves, right? That house was to be God's. That's how God would meet with these unholy people. And so he says, I'm going to come meet with them. I find this so fascinating. This holy God would come down with these grumblers and complainers. Verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meetings and the altar. And I also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. Verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What a statement. Do it my way and I'll dwell with you. That has not changed. Salvation is extremely narrow gate to the world. Isn't it? There's only one way to me. Now, taking some of these thoughts out of, out of 29, thinking in the new covenant, the new covenant fulfillment, we see a lot of things, right? So they were told to select the, the bulls and rams and the grain offerings, right? Well, Jesus Christ was selected. Beginning his ministry, he's walking through town, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the world. Publicly picked out, a forerunner, of course, that's his job. There he is. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. That's the one who can forgive sins. So Jesus Christ was that both, he's the sacrifice, he's selected as the sacrifice. He's the unblemished Lamb of God, the final Lamb. He's the unblemished Lamb selected for you and I. Then we find Christ as the holy sacrifice, right? Christ was the holy sacrifice. Not only was he picked out as, as a, um, being selected, but he becomes that. 
John 6, uh, 69, everybody's leaving him and the disciples are asked if they're going to leave too. And they say, we have believed and have become and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So not only is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but you're the Holy One. You're the right one. There's no other one who can come to the presence of God. The disciples recognize that. Of course, they all died for that belief. And then as these uh, disciples become apostles in the New Testament church, this is all they want to talk about. Even in front of the killers of Christ, in Acts 3, 14 through 16, it says, as they, as they challenge the Pharisees, they say, but you disown the holy and righteous one. That's the sacrifice. You disown the holy and righteous one. These are the religious leaders of, of the nation. He says, you've disowned him. Because you thought you were holy and you thought you were righteous, so you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. And we are witnesses to it. And then further, we who are God's holy priests now were cleansed by Christ. So in that passage, we see all this ceremonial cleansing they have to go through. They have to, there's men there to wash them down and dress them and do all those things. But we see the Lord do that to his church. Ephesians 5, we often think is the great passage on marriage, 22 through 25 and down through 31, but it actually speaks about Christ, and husbands are to reflect this, but it says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, listen to this, so he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he can present her to himself. And so Christ, he, he didn't have to be washed. He is the one that washes us. So we can stand as presented to the Father. Titus 3, 5, and 6. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit. When you study the Old Testament, and as these priests get ready to go on, and you'll see it in Leviticus and Numbers and different places, they go through all this ceremonial washing. You and I were washed once. Yeah, we drag our feet around in the world every once in a while. We need our feet washed by the word. But we are cleansed. And we stand forgiven and clean in the presence of God. And that's what our Savior did. Here we find the selection of a high priest in Exodus chapter 29. It's Aaron and his sons, 28 and 29. But Jesus Christ is the final high priest. We looked at this verse last week, but it's worth reading it again. Chapter 7, verse 25 and following, he says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Now, notice you can't just draw near to God. You must come through Christ alone, right? Since he always lives to make intercession for you, for it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above heaven. Now stop there. That's what that whole picture was supposed to do is they dressed them and cleansed them and put all these precious metals on them and covered every part of their body so that they could come into this, this tent undefiled. And then they had to do it all over and over and over and over and over and over. God sent his son who didn't have to do any of that. He was holy, innocent, undefiled. And then verse 27 says, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for their own sin and then for the sins of the people because he, because this he did once and for all, he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, they're sinners, right? But the word of the oath which came after law appoints a son made perfect forever. So Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. Aaron 
Aaron was looking forward to that final high priest. Only the true priesthood of believers could sit at God's table. I don't have time to go into all this, but right now there's all kinds of stuff flowing around about end-time theology. Everybody wants to know, you know, change of presidents, all this stuff's happening. Yeah, it doesn't look good um, from for a Christian standpoint of view. We're going to suffer. It's coming. But there are some beautiful things in the end times. I was reading today towards the end of Revelation, and just as the tribulation begins to wind down and God is pouring judgment out onto the world. He gathers his priesthood of believers. And he tells them, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. In Revelations 9, 17, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And here is the picture of all of the believers, I believe, down through time, now all assembled, the Lord is about ready to come and set up his millennial reign and judge perfectly on earth as he wipes out his enemies. And here are his people rejoicing with him. And just like what we saw happen in 29 is the priesthood is to sit down, probably in the courtyard somewhere, and have a meal with, with them. Just the priesthood, it's a meal. It's not to be shared with anybody else but the priesthood of believers. In the Old Testament. And that's what we see here. And this is what we believe the marriage supper of the Lamb coming someday. And then we see Christ bring God's people into his presence. And that's, that's really what the priest is doing. Remember he has on his shoulders two stones that represent the twelve tribes. And he has on his breastplate twelve stones. And he's bringing them in. And, and this is exactly what Jesus did in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Now, I can imagine, as I read this and studied this this week, I thought, man, I think Aaron was probably shaking the first time. And those bells were tinkling because of nerves, as his whole garments, as he walks into the presence of the most holy place. The Bible tells us to walk in with confidence, and I think this is a humble confidence. Now, I think there's a problem here as well. I think Christians, and this is what I referred to on Sunday where I said there are Reformed confessionalists, people who like Reformed theology and just say, oh, this is great. God chose me from the foundations of the world. I'll just go live any way I want. You should be shaking in your boots. Because that's not what this is talking about. This is this, is this humble confidence in Jesus Christ alone. In this dedicated life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ because he entered through the veil for us. That's the only reason why we have confidence to come before the Lord. And yet there's a sweet confidence to it. There's this Abba Father relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. And I find such comfort when I think through those things. Well, third, um, incense, oils, and a pleasing aroma to God. Chapter 30. We've got to go fast here. 1 through 10, the altar of incense is placed just outside the veil before the most holy place there. And, and if you remember the pictures I had up last week, you would see this altar just before you got to the veil. Before you went into the holy place, there would be an uh, altar of incense. And this is placed there, and the smoke 
would rise up and it would filter over the top of that veil into the most holy place. And it was meant to be a sweet aroma uh, to our God, to Yahweh who indwelled on the, between the cherubims. And, and if you think about this, and if you study just a little bit of history, this was pretty common in the courts of the kings. They would keep sweet aroma and incense burning all the time because they wanted this aroma to be around royalty. But you can imagine the courtyard of the tabernacle where there were plenty of unpleasant smells of animal life and animal death. Here, this smoke would be a sacrifice itself to God. And it's a reminder, you're in the presence of royalty. That's why Jesus called the greater priest, the greater king, the greater prophet. He's the greater king. And so there's an aroma of royalty when you get into the presence of God. And Christ has that aroma, and, and he brings it. And then that kind of worked their way into Israel's theology as they saw that smoke rising up, whether it was from the burnt offerings rising up as a sweet aroma to God, or the incense altar rising up. And they, they saw that as part of the way they prayed, that their prayers rose up with those as they prayed and thanked God and worshipped him, those rose up. David says this very well in Psalms 141, verse 2, May my prayers be set before you like incense. David wanted God to hear his prayers. And that was part of that process. It was humble. There, prayer is always a prayer. Prayer should always be a sign of dependency upon God. Not a list of demands that the priesthood puts on God. It's always a, a humble way. And so just as those raft their way up and over the curtain and flow into the most holy of holies, so we pray to a God that we approach through the righteousness of his Son. Now, verses 11 through 16 in chapter 30, the incense calls uh, for here in these verses was taken to implement a, a, excuse me, there was a census taken there. Sorry, got mixed up with my verses here. There's a census taken. It was simply just taken so that there was a tax on the people. Most of the tax on the nation of Israel um, or, or offerings that were given were, were simple tax. And if you add them all up, I think they added them up in seminary one time. I think there were somewhere roughly about 33% of their income they gave. And um, it ran the temple and the priesthood and, and ran the nation. Um, but they gave it willingly. And so here, these verses kind of set up so, that, so they can keep the upkeep and the equipment that went on with the tabernacle. 17 through 21, now you come into this brazen um, bronze uh, wash basin, um, which was traditionally known as a laver, right? We, they call it a laver. But notice it's found in the courtyard. It's not part of all the furnishing that's already been described in previous chapters here. Because it was used for preparation of the priests to go in. It wasn't used as worship for the Lord. It was used for them to cleanse themselves. And so I, don't think, I think that's why it wasn't mentioned earlier. And then what's interesting is you get into 22 through 33. And you get into these fragrant oils. Now, um, you essential oil people don't get all wound up. Um, this is an interesting thing. There's these fragrant oils were widely used. Um, in this time, you know, you, you can imagine what it smelled like with two to four million people camping out together, you know, with no plumbing. Um, and even as towns and cities got built, you know, there was a gutter that ran down the middle of the street and that would run off the end and that would go into a dump called Gehenna and it would be burning perpetually there and all, you know, and so 
you may have a, a washroom in your house if you were fortunate, and you would just take a bucket and wash that out a little, just a little indent in the wall, and that would go into the middle of the street, and that would make its way out. So you can imagine the smell of, of ancient world. So fragrant oils were used to kind of dampen that a lot. But, but here, and I love this, God says, I want a special mixture for me. You can see this in verse 31. They were to make this special mixture. It was a relatively small amount of oil by the time they extracted this. And it gives you the details, 22 through 33. But there was a sacred oil reserved for the Lord, not used anywhere else. I could just imagine one of you essential gals go, oh, we have that <laughs> for 1999. Uh, <laughs> no, no. This was not to be used by anybody else. And, and, and doubtlessly this started to happen. You know, some guy, hey, you know, I got the stuff they're using in there. And, you know, but God, I mean, look at verse 31. God made it very clear. Do not, this does not go to anywhere else. This is made for worship of me. Do not mess with this. Now, 38 through, 34 through 38, the instructions regarding the incense follow naturally the descriptions of preparing these uh, anointing oils that were given as well. And so 34 through 35 give the composition of the incense, 36, the use of it, and it's to remain holy in that use. And then verse 37 through 38 is this warning that you don't try to sell these, don't use this for anything else. God wanted this stuff set apart for him. Now, how does the new covenant come into play here when we start to think about chapter 30? Well, just as the incense was a sweet aroma to God and as it rafts up into the most holy place, so his beloved children are a sweet aroma to him as we imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm running out of time, so hang with me and write these verses down. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 2. 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as a beloved children, as beloved children, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So Christ was this fragrant aroma, the most fragrant, I don't know how to say that plural, he, he was the greatest fragrant aroma to God. And the Bible now tells us that we are to walk in such a way that we are a fragrant aroma to God. Set apart. Remember, that aroma, those oils, all of that incense was to be set apart, not to be sold or used anywhere else but for God. And that points to us as believers. All who came before the Lord also must wash and cleanse themselves. And, and we have um, this again in chapter 30 as well. And, and I, man, isn't it hard to see sinners in the, in the Bible? And they all want to be cleansed. David sinned with Bathsheba, and he begs God in Psalms 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me um, from my sin. So you have this, this broad, brazen uh, wash pan there before they go in. Um, David goes on just a little while later, says, purify me with hyssop, and so I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be water and snow. There's, there's this desire from David, I want to be right in your presence. Take away my sin. But Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So these priests had to be cleansed ceremonially, right? And then they had to do it the next time they came, and the next time. But, but, there, but God says, I'm going to cleanse you I'm going to wash you and regenerate you and bring you into my presence. And that's exactly what Titus 3.5 said, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now also, in parallel with this, our lives are reserved as a fragrant aroma for the Lord in all that we do. Now the priests were told to set this stuff aside. 
But we as believer priests are told this as well. I don't have time to take you here, but there's a very interesting verse. It's Philippians 4.18. Just jot this down. Epaphroditus has been sent to the Philippi church. Paul was not able to come. He was in prison. So he sends Epaphroditus, and, and Epaphroditus comes back with things for Paul. And he says this, but he's telling the church now, as he writes a letter to him, he says, But I have received everything in full and in abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Now listen to this. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, the, Philipp, the Philippi believers did not send him essential oils. But what they did is serve the Lord, minister to a missionary, a brother in the Lord, in prison, and God said, that is a sweet aroma to me. Now that's beautiful. And everybody thinks, well, I, I don't have that guy's gift or that girl's gift. Or, Serve the Lord and be a sweet aroma to him. I mean, Epaphroditus carried this message and Paul looked at what they did and what he sent. And they said, wow, he goes, that's a sweet aroma to God. Boy, it was sure kind to me, but that was a sweet aroma to God. That's what he wants. That's what we do. And so we see these things in the Old Testament flushed out in our life. One more um, parallel here. Set your life apart as sacred to the Lord and reserve, reserved only for him. Colossians goes down through a list, right? Just like Ephesians says, submit to one another, then it gives a list of wives, husbands, uh, wives, husbands to wives, husbands to Christ, children to parents, slaves to masters, and masters to God, right? Uh, we see that. Colossians says something very similar, but then it says this, whatever you do, do your work heartily to the Lord, for, uh, and not to man, but knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of inheritance, and listen to this, it is the Lord whom you serve. That's who the sweet aroma of your work goes to. So grumbling and complaining about your job and what you have or what you don't have is not a sweet aroma. He does not like grumbling. We'll see when we get a little farther in the Old Testament that he goes, ten times you grumbled against me. Oh, man, he's counting. That's not a sweet aroma. Romans chapter... 7 tells us why it isn't, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of letter. And if you're trying to serve God in the oldness of letter, trying to serve God through law, you'll never be a sweet aroma to him. We are grace-motivated believers, saved by growth, grace, given faith to believe that's sweet aroma to God. That motivates wives to love their husbands and husbands to love their wives and children to obey them. That's our motivation is the gospel. And what a sweet aroma that is. Quickly, number four, empowered, gifted workers. I really like this one. Who needed the Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Chapter 31 is the short chapter. Um, and then we'll get to next week as Moses comes down the mountain. But there's, final, there's two final matters that he wants to address in chapter 31 before Moses comes off the mountain here. And the first is God is selecting men whom he anointed to manufacture and build the tabernacle and all its precious articles that are in it. And, and what's interesting when you study verse 31, and, and you'll see this throughout the Bible with other instructions that come, even King David and Solomon and so forth. Um, these men are gifted in their trade. But even... Even in their giftedness, God endows them with special ability 
not to just build, but to understand and build according to God's way. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I thought about this verse, and I thought about how practical this could be, that if all of us in our different roles that we have, I, I think I told you, uh, not, maybe last week or soon, sometimes, I have two things I pray for all the time is, God would help me, and he would give me wisdom. I pray for that. Um, and what if you prayed that God, every day you walked into work, and you said, God, give me wisdom. I want to glorify you. Will you endow me with wisdom and understanding to do my job for your glory? I think you'd stop hating your job. You would stop glor- start glorifying him. And I love it. These men, God endows them with this special, uh, to come along their own gift in this, but this special ability to understand what God was doing. You know, and, and you need those kind of guys, right? Well, I don't think the altar should be this way. <laughs> you know, when you talk with a builder, it always goes, well, I think you should do it this way. No, no. They believed God had spoke. This is what he was doing. And their, and their spirit agreed with the spirit of God. And it fell upon them and he directed them. These kind of guys you want building your house. Second, even during the intense requirements of the, of the construction of the tabernacle, God wants his workers in his nation to have rest on the Sabbath. And he deals with that here. It, the temptation would be, man, we got to get this done because God's going to dwell here and we got we have a huge weight on us to nail these, these, all these articles and different things that are a way they're built, the poles and the sockets and all the curtains and all that stuff that has to be pulled together. And he says, whoa, whoa, rest. Rest. Rest till the Lord of the Sabbath comes. And then you'll rest permanently in him. And so he tells them not to neglect that. And I think there's a lot of things for that. One, everything was holy before God, and even the seventh day was holy before God. But he also, his people were to be set apart. They were not to be like the pagans who worked themselves into the graves. They were to rest. And so that was given to them because they're living in tents, and they want to get into, the, they want to get into the Canaan and the Promised Land and so forth, but God wants them to be holy, right? And so... All that remained till Jesus arrived. And he showed that man could never work enough to please God and that they had even turned the Sabbath into a religious exercise. And that's what happens today. People who want to keep the Sabbath, man, you just don't want to live in that house. That's a difficult place. I had some ranchers I worked with that were in the Seventh-day movement. And, um, man, things just came to a grinding halt. I mean, just... Um, sadness just fell over those houses and those ranches during those times because they were carrying a burden that God did not want them. And you see that's in the New Testament, Mark chapter 2. Jesus and the disciples are walking around. They're heading, they're heading into town. The disciples grab a little fistful of grain that they could take legally on the edges of the fields. And there they began to eat. And of course the Pharisees are right there just nailing Jesus. How come your disciples don't keep the traditions other places said they were mad because they didn't wash their hands and so forth. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I'll tell you, anytime you want to pick up some legalistic thing you want to run with, you'll be a slave to it. And what's worse is those who are under your care will feel the slavery more than you. God sent his son to be Lord of the Sabbath. And Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For the one who has entered his rest as himself also rests in his work just as God did. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that none will fall, right? People fall because they don't enter into the rest of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell people all the time, every day is a Sabbath for me, sorry. Do you work at all? <laughs> every day is a Sabbath. Monday's the Sabbath for me. I wake up. I'm resting in Jesus. I've laid aside my tools of work for salvation. I don't use them anymore. I depend on the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a new set of tools, his word, worship of him, fruit of my lips. But now I don't work anymore for my salvation. I rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we come back to that great verse. Remember when you want to tell somebody about Christ, you say 10-4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because most people are going to come to you and go, what, what do I got to do to be saved? Do I got to go to your church? Do I, do I, do I got to walk aisles? Do, do you hit me with paddles? What, what do I got to run a gauntlet? What do I got to do? Should I, should I quit smoking before I come or after? See, I got all this list, right? You got to teach him Christ is the end of the law. He has a righteousness that you need. Verse 18, we'll just finish here. It's a beautiful verse. Um, when he had finished speaking to them, to him on the Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. When all this is done, God finished speaking, he sent him down the mountain. But he didn't send him empty-handed, he gave him two tablets, the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God in this anthropomorphic here language, isn't it? As illustrates God's person in a way as he etched out but really what all that saying is God has the authority that those are God's words and then chapter 32 have you ever been there where you've had such a sweet time maybe a mom in here you've come to mom's group and you've been encouraged and prayed or you went to DTP or you've been in a woman's Bible study and then you come home and they're building a calf in your living room have you ever men been away to a retreat and you got right with God and you know you knew your marriage wasn't where it, where it should be and soon as you come in something flies at you you know you're just somebody's mad at you or you're, you feel the heat of a bad marriage for years that's what Moses is going to walk down to he's just spent this beautiful time with the Lord getting instructions of how almighty God is going to reside with sinners and he comes down and the house is a wreck. Well, we'll get into that next week. These are very exciting verses. And it'll, it'll teach you what happens if God leads us to ourselves. If God leads us to ourselves, we'll start building bull calves out of Egypt. It'll be a mess. And we'll have to grind them up and drink them. So, Father, thanks for this time in the Word. We thank you that Christ is the fulfillment of all of the law. We find our rest in our Lord Jesus Christ. We find our righteousness in Him. He is our mediator. We find even our confidence to enter through the veil to the most holy God in the most holy place because Jesus Christ went before us. He's everything. Lord, you're everything to us. This is why we sing the way we sing, how we study so hard and teach and learn and grow because you have captured us, Lord Jesus. We're dressed like you, Lord. We'll feast with you, Lord. 
Lord, this is such a beautiful truth to learn. Lord, help us as children of the Most High to allow our positional holiness to affect our practical holiness. That all of what Jesus Christ has done for us will cause us to want to live for you every day. Oh Lord, we're going to fail, but we have a high priest who entered the veil once and for all. And Lord, help us to confess those sins and remind ourselves that you have forgiven us. Lord, let us not lay on the side of the race. Let us get back up by your grace and mercy through the remembrance that you died for us and get us running again. Running this race, Lord, it is a short time. Day, it's day now, but night is coming, Lord, where no man will work. So Lord, help us prepare well at times like this. And then tomorrow morning as this priesthood spreads out over Volusia County, and fills offices and job sites and schools and all over the place, Lord. May the priesthood believers honor our Lord with great joy and satisfaction in Him. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen.